Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. So thank you for listening to Bluebells Forever podcast. And so this is going to be for the, I think the first one coming out in January with the new year. And for me, it feels like a good time to come back and go, why did I start this podcast? And then it's definitely about the dancers, but a lot of it for me is about who is Miss Bluebell. And honestly, I have learned more from doing this podcast than I ever knew from dancing in the shows because we would be back. Nobody said, you know, much about Miss Bluebell. We got, we auditioned, we get in the shows. And then it wasn't till later that I found out like who, who she was. And Christopher, you've been a huge part of that as far as the history Pete Menifee is on here and also like how you worked with her personally. And I loved your stories of spending time with her because as this time has gone on of almost two years of doing the podcast, I am more in awe of her and admire her. And I want everybody, I want my young dancers to know like who she was that maybe it doesn't affect them in hip hop class, but how much cabaret influences every art form that a lot of us in the dance world, you know, we talk about dance history and we usually go back to Fosse and that's kind of it Jerome Robbins it's like there's this whole scope of people that influenced how how entertainment came to be and why and why Miss Bluebell had a certain standard where does that come from so I want to thank Christopher Nunez and Pete Menifee I've had you both on Pete I don't know how many times we're gonna just we're gonna do the uh what is it like this is that mini series of Pete Menifee and then I and then also I've had you on my circle back because I felt like in one hour interview it's never enough because your own personal stories are captivating. And then also you just are this wealth of knowledge that to me, it feels important that we, we really know what we're part of, you know, that, that we're, we're telling our stories, like who, who is the one that started this? So I'm going to first pass it off to Christopher and I want to thank you for coming on. And, and also I'd love for you to share like what you did, what your profession was, but what you're doing now, because it also kind of gives some credence and then tell us like, why do you know so much about Miss Bluebell, Margaret Kelly? Good question. I never met Miss Bluebell. Um, so I'm Christopher Nunez. Um, I lived in Las Vegas for about 11 years. Um, I worked as a manager of um, shows. Um, I worked for a company out there a long time called Base Entertainment. And they produced um, Fan of the Opera, which I worked on for many years and, uh, in Las Vegas and Rock of Ages and all kinds of shows. Uh, I live Right now I live in New York City and I work for a Disney theatrical group um, on their touring productions in a, in a management capacity. Uh, but um, it's really been a hobby of mine. I, I got into a Bluebell first, when I first moved to Las Vegas, I saw Jubilee and I was fascinated by it. It to me was a genre of entertainment that existed nowhere else. And I never understood that. Not really until I went to Paris and I saw the Lido and the Moulin Rouge that I really understand more about that. But I read her book, which is difficult to find, but, but still around about her life. And I just became fascinated. Years later, I went to graduate school and it became sort of a project of mine to sort of do as much research and read as much as I could about this process. Um, I write as well. And as a hobby, I've been writing sort of a, a theatrical piece about her work uh, and her life. And um, I just became really interested in it. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a story that needs to be told to young people that don't know it. And now that that genre of entertainment is sort of very hard to find, especially in America, I think we need to, to shine some light on it, you know? And we see that sort of aesthetic and those type of shows sort of reflected in other media. Every time I see a pop star wearing feathers, I think of people like Bluebell and Pete Menifee and, 
and uh, and the you know that that genre of entertainment. But I'm sort of fascinated by why it went away, and sort of I would love to see that sort of entertainment reinvented. So that's sort of my background. I hope that's that answered your question. Yeah. Okay, Pete. Let's do your background, but then we won't go into Bluebell just yet. Right now, we'll just kind of do like, who are you, and what right do you have to talk <laughs> about Miss Bluebell? <laughs> uh, well, I'm uh, fortunately I'm I'm retired now. Uh, I retired uh, when I turned seventy, and my last job was Jubilee. Uh, I worked on Jubilee with Don and uh, and Blue. Uh, God, well, first I did Hello Hollywood, Hello with Don and Bluebell, and so I I worked with them from nineteen probably seventy five to two thousand twelve. So my jobs with Don and Blue weren't really jobs. They were like an avocation. I kept being asked to come back and redesign something or tweak it. And, and, it, and it was a great privilege. It's, a, it's an incredible, incredible theatrical form. And uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid it's, it's pretty dead. I, mm. For starters, I don't think anyone could really afford to do it. On, on the uh, level that uh, Don did. Uh, when, when Bob Mackey and I did Jubilee, we spent uh, over two, I think $2.3 million on the, on the, the clothes and wow. costumes. And I, I, don't even, I don't even know what that would be now. You know, I don't think that, that uh, Anyone could afford to do a show like that. And of course, times have changed too. I think uh, although their presentation of Cabaret was the most elegant in the world, I think that after Me Too and a, 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 a lot of contemporary feelings uh, about objectifying women, uh, I, I don't think it would it would really fly now again. Uh, I I never saw anything wrong with it, and uh, and you, you know, and I was an altar boy and a boy scout, <laughs> so uh, I I thought their form of of the show was incredible, and of course, a lot of that started with Bluebell. Because when she started her troupe, you know, girl dancers probably had a, a pretty loose reputation. And, you know, Bluebell was English and she was a lady and she was not going to deal with any of that. And she was stringent with her women about how they looked, how they held themselves, how they behaved, uh, how, how they appeared in shows. When, uh, I, I just found out that uh, about a few months ago from one of your podcasts that when Don brought the Lido over from Paris for the first time to Vegas, that uh, the women in the shows were expected to kind of mingle and, you know, and be glamorous with the, uh, with the high rollers and, and, the, and the drinkers. <laughs> and... Uh, when Bluebell found that out, someone said, she said, absolutely, that is not going to happen. If, if they want that, I'll fly all my girls back to England, you know. And uh, 
so her her standards um, just of behavior were extraordinarily high. The women were always regarded as ladies. The guys were always <laughs> regarded as gentlemen. I worked for years with Shirley MacLaine and I used to say boy dancer and girl dancer, even though I used to be a boy dancer. And Shirley would correct me like she was talking to a child. She'd say, no, ladies and gentlemen or men and women, you know, you, you, don't, uh, you don't call somebody a boy or a girl, you know, when, when they've spent 15 years of their life perfecting an art form. And, uh, and, and Blue is very much like that. She really, they respected, and Don did too, they really respected their performers. They demanded a great deal of them, but, but um, they respected them and they wanted them treated with respect mm -hmm. as well. So Christopher, I want to come back to you because I know you've told this in your own episode, but I kind of like to overlap. If you can, because I know you've done a lot of your research on the history of when Miss Bluebell started and about the war, because those are pieces I kind of heard glimpses until I read the book. And even that book, I like it, but it's kind of dry. I have way more fun listening to you than I had reading that book. <laughs> <laughs> but can you tell for those who haven't heard it or just those of us who need a refresher, how she started out and how this became even to come over to America? It's not, and people think that showgirls are just Vegas or just Paris, but they're Miss Bluebell's part of both continents of that. She started as a young dancer in Liverpool, and she auditioned there. Um, she ended up get, getting cast in a small troupe of dancers that was called the Hot Jocks, believe it or not. <laughs> it was a, a line of a, a small line of female dancers, and I think a male uh, sort of comic singer. And they toured all over England, and then uh, from there she got cast uh, as one of the Alfred Jackson Girls. The Alfred Jackson Girls was a troupe of a line of dancers. I, I think there was about twenty of them. In, in, in each production. And they were sort of like the Rockettes or the Tiller girls. They were, it was, a, um, Alfred Jackson was a, a sort of a, a line captain kind of choreographer guy. And he started this troupe and he had multiple lines of the troupe. And so uh, she first got cast to do their show in Berlin in Germany. Uh, this is in the 1930s. She did that for a while. Um, and uh, that, there's a whole interesting story of that in her book, but from there, she, um, she makes it into hit the Alfred Jackson troupe that was playing at the Folie Bergere. And so that's really her start is at the Folie Bergere into like the traditional sort of nightclub show, which was a different genre at that time. Um, and from there, um, she eventually takes over the, tr the troupe and they become the Bluebells. Not only are they the Bluebells at the Folie Bergere, but at other theaters around Paris. She starts growing the troupe. They start traveling to places like Italy to Germany at the same time the war starts. So, um, and, and it was a, a tough time during during the war. You know, the Folly Bridger shut down. She had married a, um, a, a, the um, orchestra conductor at the Folly Bridger, um, Marcel, uh, he was Jewish. Uh, there's a whole long story there throughout the war. At one point she was hiding him for a long period of time in Paris in a separate apartment that was hidden. Uh, and she went through incredible hardship she had had her children, uh, one of her children by that point during the war. So really, really difficult time. She went back to sort of creating a small troupe in a small nightclub that was known for sort of underground resistance work. Like they were um, trading food and rations there while shows were going on in this nightclub. Mm -hmm. 
So really, really difficult history during that time. Um, so the war ends, you know, um, her and Marcel make it out of that. And then after the war, she has real success um, at, with the Lido. So the Lido is just um, moving and reopening in a brand new space right after the war. Um, and it becomes the nightclub in Paris to go see these types of shows. And now again, this is a much smaller show than what we're used to, than what's at the Lido now, or certainly much smaller than anything we saw in Las Vegas or in Reno. And so uh, the troupe continues to grow and grow and grow. And at, you know, at, at one point there's bluebells dancing all over Europe in different theaters, on tours in South America. Um, and uh, uh, then um, I'm trying to, I think it's late, maybe 58, 59, uh, the Lido comes to the U.S. to the Stardust in Las Vegas, and they have a long relationship with the Stardust. I think six, seven, eight reviews played there over many years uh, time at the Stardust. And then, um, you know, she meets Don actually at the Lido. Lido um, Don's producing and directing the shows at the Lido for a long time. And that's where they meet. And that's really where this sort of like style of show evolves. It's Bluebell, it's Arden, it's the Lido, uh, a whole slew of choreographers and talent that they start using and, and um, um, from costume designers to set designers that really it starts to evolve. These shows get bigger and bigger and bigger until you see the spectacles like Jubilee at the MGM and um, Hello Hollywood Hello and Hollywood Hollywood. All those shows were sort of like the pinnacle of this genre of entertainment that again grew over many, many years. Is that a good, I think that's yeah. a good- Yeah, and I have a question, Christopher, if you know this, because I know her is not like the eight, but she would find the girls for, that she knew Dawn like, but she wasn't choreographing or any of that. But when she started out, was she choreographing, on, staging? Was she like kind of yeah. managing, doing everything? Early on, she was, um, not for all the shows, but for like, uh, for instance, she had a troupe of, um, of girls, there were a line of 24 girls that played at, played at a cinema in Paris. And she would choose the music. Uh, she would, you know, uh, lead the discussion about what what that show would be. There were these are short shows that would play before film, and uh, she would she was part of all of that, the choreography. Um, and then as this troupe started to grow, it became less about that because it was more about managing the operation. And the big thing was really finding these women because she was really the person who made them tall. You know, that was her idea to sort of make them stand out from all the other troops of dancers in Paris at the time. Um, and I think she had a lot of hand in the way they were presented, not necessarily that she was designing costumes or anything like that, but the way that the Bluebells sort of had a, a, a look and the way they presented themselves. And there was a certain class and elegance that I don't think all the other troops of women had. And I think that was all her idea. I would say, and this is me taking some liberty, is she sort of invented what we think of as the showgirl in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know who said this, but Pete, you can tell me if this feels true to you, that when you've got a tall girl with long limbs, the fabric moves different. Like you can have these, but if you put on a shorter person, the fabric's not gonna move the same, even that space of a long torso. I'm just thinking like when they knew what they were looking at, like their proportion must have mattered. And then as a costume designer, when you go, oh, I don't know if that gives you more freedom or more challenge. Oh no, it's much more freedom. I mean, okay. you know, you could put, pay, put a, uh, a paper Safeway bag on most of those women <laughs> and they'd walk on stage and kill everybody. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's a pleasure. It's, uh, you know, great to be able to dress men and women who are that tall. 
they can wear anything. They really can. And, and the proportion is, is different. You know, seeing mm -hmm. a woman with very long legs on stage next to a woman with, say, a long torso and short legs, you know, there'd be no contest. There would, mm. uh, the, the, the women, the women were all proportioned pretty much the same because of Bluebell and Don. And uh, they all had shortish torsos. They all had uh, long legs. Uh, none, of, none of them had uh, altered breasts. And most of them have, sh have small, smallish heads. They're usually, yeah, they're usually around uh, 21 and a half, which is like a, almost a child's head size. And it's it doesn't incredible. have anything with their brain, right? How much stuff <laughs> we put on top of them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, I know it was Rowena that said that Miss Bluebell, I think it was a British girl's, because I cannot remember how this worked. Either French girls had long torsos and short legs, but she, the Aussies that, or something. Yeah, that's, what, but, that's what she said. I think it was, I don't know if that's true, but the British, the proportion, I don't know if you of us Americans slid in there, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know if well, that's like, maybe we've all morphed so much that it's not really, you know, a body type anymore because we're all so intermixed, but I'm just yeah, curious yeah. if that's. Well, that's, uh, that kind of hasn't, hasn't been that way for a long time. Uh, I did Miss Universe for 20 years and I had two Miss Japans that were six feet tall. Wow! Extraordinary oh, yeah. brain yeah. for a, a, a an Oriental woman, you know, beautiful. They look they look like they could have been in in one of Don's shows. I see dancers that come to my studio now, and I can't say, "Oh, we should go to Vegas," because I can't tell them that. But I see, oh. oh, they they dance that way, they can present that way, their bodies that way. But you can't say where they could go because right now, again, being a tall person is you can't get into theater a lot of times. But that's one of the things that comes up a lot is like these were girls that felt gangly and awkward and mm -hmm. a lot of them say, I didn't have a boyfriend. So it's too tall and kind of got excluded. But then Miss Bluebell has this place that that celebrated. And so it feels exclusive yeah. for all the shorter dancers that don't get in. But now we're back to like, where do the dance tall dancers go? Cause I don't even think Fosse Fosse likes, you know, the older, more mature ballet body, but I don't, I don't know if for tall dancers, he, he likes it's hard. He, he really preferred tall women. When you look at someone like Anne Ranking and oh my God, yeah. all legs. Yeah. So I have a uh, Pete, you told me some stories and it might've only been on the um, Patreon page. So I don't know if people heard it. You just had some sweet stories about hanging out with Miss Bluebell in Paris. Oh. Can you share those? Cause that's the part also I like hearing like what she was like as a human, not as me going, oh, or kind of even nervous or like, oh my gosh, she's like, I thought she was strict and I found out no, she's super loving and friendly, but. What was, yeah. how did that even become? Like, how was, how did it even start to be like, well, you're going to hang I, out together? When I first met her, when we were doing uh, uh, Hello Hollywood, Hello in Reno, I thought she was extremely reserved and, and you know, a, a traditional English kind of grand woman because she was very quiet. Uh, she she almost never gave her opinion about anything around Don, which was very strange. You know, she would just kind of be there and uh, and very supportive always. But um, by the time I'd done Jubilee, uh, I did know her. I did, I was happy enough to know her. And she, she uh, uh, 
a lot of my stuff was made in Paris. Uh, the feathers were all done at Maison Favrier. Uh, Bob and I had our own jewelers. I had a jeweler named Jacques Ricoir. Uh, our shoes and boots were all made by Clairvois. And, uh, and I don't speak French. <laughs> <laughs> that so, was pretty impressive though. <laughs> yeah, so Bluebell always got one, one of her dancers. Uh, Sylvia uh, went with me many, many times to uh, uh, Favrier and, and to other places. So I, I got to know not only Bluebell, but uh, some of the, of the dancers she was close with as well. And at the end of Jubilee, I had to go back for, uh, I think it was two weeks to do some cleanup work. And I had to go every place. I had to go to the jewelers, the bootmakers, every place. And so they got me a car and a driver and I had him mm -hmm. 24 hours. And I, I thought, oh my God, this is terrific. Uh, uh, in fact, one day I was going to Swarovski and they called him and said, uh, uh, don't, don't come with Pete yet. We're not ready for him. Uh, give us two hours. And so the driver came back to the car and, and said, well, they can't see us for two hours. What do you want to do? And I said, God, I, I don't know. He said, well, what do you like? And I said, well, I like gardening. He took me, in those two weeks, he took me to every garden in Paris, to the Tuileries, I mean, really all over. He was so great. But one of the things that was wonderful was uh, I was in touch with, with Bluebell every day and uh, setting up the schedule and stuff. And I told her that I had a car and I said, I'd love to take you out to dinner tonight. And, and Sylvia, because uh, there was a, a, a place near my hotel uh, called uh, Mopti Kour that uh, was, I had eaten at, that I loved. And I thought they'd enjoy it. And neither of them had been there before. So we were having a terrific dinner and Bluebell said, you know what I'd love to do? And I said, what's that? And she said, while you're here, let's take each other out to dinner every night. Tomorrow night will be my treat, okay? So we went out, we went out every night. We went to so many restaurants and, and she was, you know, she's delightful, delightful company. And uh, the last night we were there, I, I rang her up and I said, uh, it's my last night and it's, uh, it, it's my turn. So where, where do you feel like eating tonight? And there was this long pause and she said, uh, I think, I think I need some pizza. <laughs> we ended up in one of those pizza joints on the Champs-Élysées <laughs> in a chauffeured car with her in a Chanel suit. It was hysterical. Oh my gosh, let's it love this story. And, and I'm telling you, she could, she could, get the pizza and beer down too. Really? <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. We had a good time. We had a good time. So she was, she was lovely. She was really great to hang out with. Funny sense of humor. Really? Uh, knowledgeable, you know, uh, and, and, you know, talking to her about the history, her history <laughs> was like going to college, you know, how, how everything had happened. Uh, we talked a bit about the war, which was incredible. 
and incredible, mm. period. Yeah. She was an unbelievable woman. She was an unbelievable. Mm. And I've heard from, from other friends of mine, uh, Valerie Perrine, the actress, was a showgirl uh, at the Lido. Mm. And she had to come out of the ceiling. And I remember Valerie saying, I was scared of the height. And she said, and Bluebell got on the ladder and back of me and pushed me by the ass up. <laughs> <laughs> and said, get up there. <laughs> yeah, wow. she, she, she was a pistol, Bluebell. She really was. And then I, hear I, wish I'd, I wish I'd gotten to, to work with her a lot yeah. more. And with you, got to, you got to have pizza in a private car with her. Again, it's just fun to see because when we put, we have an idea of someone and to hear like the more of the facet, facets of them, like they weren't, she wasn't just aloof. She was probably really fun. Like, I wish I could just sit and have tea with her and just hear her stories. Oh, we lost Pete for a second. Um, so Christopher, when you started doing all this research, I love, I think if people only hearing this for the first time, like even her name, Bluebell, like her, that's not her real name. Her real name is Margaret Kelly. And so you know the reason why she's called Bluebell, right? Yeah, um, apparently she says in her book that um, uh, she, she was sick as a child and her adoptive mother, Mary Murphy, Murphy um, brought in a doctor, took her to see a doctor. And the doctor said, saw her eyes and said, well, you should call her Bluebell, you know, because of her eyes. And that sort of became her nickname. And so she took that with her all the way you know, uh, and when she had her own troops, she decided to call them the Bluebells. Although, you know, if you look at different programs throughout history, it was spelled different ways. Sometimes it was an E, sometimes it was two words, Bluebell. Uh, oh. and, it, it sort of became, and, then, and then the Kelly boys were the, the dancing boys. Now, there's a lot of confusion, and I've heard it on your podcast, too, about, mm -hmm. like, showgirls and ponies and Bluebells and uh, all these different terms. You know, I, I tend to think that they're all sort of showgirls, but no, there was like a, you know, a certain time a showgirl meant something else. They weren't sort of dancing as much and all that and all that stuff. So I, I, I think it's all interesting. I think they're all showgirls. They're all bluebells, you know, mm -hmm. um, but it, it's interesting that there was a, a distinction there. You know, at one time, the bluebell was sort of an advertisement for a level of excellence. So when you saw that in the program that they were bluebells, you saw it on the marquee of the theater in Paris or in Italy or wherever, that meant something, especially in Europe. Um, I don't know if in, in America, the, the name bluebell um, mm. was used that much, you know, uh, on the American shows, but in Europe, it really meant a, a level of uh, professional dancers and a level of elegance and a certain way that they were always presented and, that you know certainly didn't happen at the other shows. I also wanted to mention that um, Bluebell was was an orphan, uh, um, uh, and so just an interesting part of her life. But you know she talks about it in her book in, in great detail, and um, you know it's interesting. It's interesting that she um, you know she went on to sort of mother so many dancers. You know I yeah. think that I don't know if mothering is the right word, but she she sort of went. Yeah. She was a therapist. She was a you know I hear it on your podcast all the time about how. She helped young dancers sort of make that debut into a show like that, that a difficult transition. Some of them, it's their first time away from home or they're in a different country or in a different city or um, don't know how to do their makeup or wear the costume. And she was sort of that person that helped them sort of in this new world, in this new genre that they may not have been familiar with. So, you know, I, I think they needed that, you know. Uh, it reminds me of times when, I, you know, I've, I've been a company manager before. You have young performers that maybe don't know how to, do, do their taxes or know how to do yeah. all these things and you need to sort of like help them along 
or read a contract or um, so I, I think she she did she filled a lot of roles in that way um, in addition to just you know finding this incredible talent. Yeah, I think it's I, I've told the story, but my audition. Actually, I'm going to bring it up because it does it hits me different now too. Is when I auditioned as Tom Pete. Like we don't realize until later how hard those auditions were as far as what they want, like what what Miss Bluebell knows Don want, what Don wants. But there was only three of us that got hired out of 300. And so when I told my parents I was going to do this and I was topless, I mean, it's not a fun story, but I went to Miss Bluebell to tell her I couldn't take it because I, I was told I would never marry anybody if I did this show, kind of like I would be tainted or there's just a lot. And I had my own religious, a lot of super conservative stuff that was saying that. So I just, when she talked to me, like saying that these are good girls, they, you know, like this is what a Bluebell is, that this is not, you know, like this is the woman's body. It's not like what people think of strippers. But the kindness, and I think that mothering, because what I was going through at home and have Miss Bluebell almost come in as that mother figure. I remember her hugging me and it's just somehow when I picture her as this proper woman, that, that mother part and how many stories people have said, like she would check in with them if they're going through something and either like a letter or she remembered birthdays. So I think that there's, there is something very personal, even though she was this businesswoman, I actually esteem her even higher now because of how smart she was with her business and for women to do what she did and have that responsibility, not under their husband, but for herself makes me admire her. So yeah, I think that mother thing and her compassion, I'm hearing more and more in everybody's stories. And when people call her Madam Bluebell, Miss Bluebell, or just blue, I'm like, Oh, that feels very familiar. I can't ever just call her blue, but I want to know also like, this is something that's on maybe going to happen for you that you would write this as a musical because who knows what you're going to do with it. I'm just so intrigued that you have done this much, re much research because I want to know if you talk about the war a little bit too, because I can't remember if it's Bluebell's book. I read Josephine Baker's book. I read the hero. What is the heroine one? The something. Oh, the naked heroine. The naked heroine. And just hearing what Paris was like after the war. Cause that part really was hard for me. It's not like the war was ended and everything came back, like how the French were turning in the French and there was still food scarcity and cabaret is still coming back and hearing how some of the shows when they had to perform for the Nazis, it's just, I think in the context of war, this Miss Bluebell's character feels even more amazing to me of what she overcame and still had this compassion and this, um, how she cared for her dancers. I mean, that wasn't a question. I don't know what that was. I'm still processing everything you're saying. I mean, I think it's hard to imagine that you're in this major city that's incredible and has this incredible vibrant entertainment scene. And then it gets taken over by the Nazis and everything changes in a very short period of time. And uh, for a while, the, these cabarets stayed open while the, the Nazis were occupying uh, Paris. And so they were performing uh, for the Nazis. You know, these soldiers would take their wives to these shows because that was a huge tourist attraction there. So I, I can't imagine what these performers would have been going through. You know, a, lo a lot of French people, but also people from all over Europe, you know, a lot of British girls were in those shows at the time. And in fact, most of the Bluebells were British at that time. Um, so uh, it must have been a really incredibly scary time to, um, and then you have to make a living because there's no, you know, there's everyone's broke, you know, even, mm. you know, I, before the war, she was doing well. She was, she had a, a thriving business of, of um, and she was well-known in, in Paris. And, uh, and then to have to sort of start from scratch during, during those war years. And, you know, they, at one point they, it, you know, it was a long process. It was several years. So at one point she, they, they tried to escape Paris. 
they, they were taken back. Uh, Marcel, her husband, was um, was uh, taken to a um, an internment camp, uh, uh, and uh, he escaped, uh, which is in the book. It's a, it's a fascinating yeah. story about uh, the escape, and he ended up coming back to Paris, which was very dangerous. Um, she had a small child at the time, um, and so was living alone. He came back to her, and they were able to arrange a situation where he lived in a, in a hidden apartment on the other side of the city, and she would go on a bike once a week and bring him food. Uh, and uh, I mean, very scary times, you know. And, yeah. and she had her own situation. At, at one point, she was she was also she was taken to an internment camp uh, and spent several weeks there over a Christmas holiday. Uh, and then was eventually released. Um, so, um, and part of that situation was that she was born in Ireland, didn't have British papers that were, you know, correct enough for the Nazis at the time. And so they, um, they, I don't know all the specifics, but it, um, they, uh, they held her for a period of time in this internment camp. And it's fascinating. She, she really fought back in that situation she, she tells about it in the book which, which might, must have been a very scary time and of course they didn't know all then what we know now about what was going on in Europe and what the Nazis were doing they knew a little bit but not all of it mm, so gosh. I mean really fascinating time and then for that all to be happening all that sort of dark greedy difficult stuff to be happening uh in the shadow of these sort of glamorous cabaret shows you know that juxtaposition of like this really difficult time with um, and she talks about in the book about how they were they were recycling costumes during that period. There was just not enough money to even produce these big shows, you know. Um, so it, really interesting time. I do want to mention, you know, you mentioned about um, Bluebell and and sort of being a mother. It, it brought to mind in her obituary in one of the big Paris papers. They said uh, the headline was the most beautiful legs in Paris mourn, and I thought that was an interesting. Oh. Like all the bluebells, you know, yeah. were, were mourning the loss of, and they talk about how she was a mother to so many women. When I go to Paris in April, I'm, I'm going to go do all the cabaret tours or whatever's there, not just Paris, but I, I'm finding out from the interviews there's in Strasbourg and like there's, there's other shows that have been going this whole time. It's just, we only kind of know the big ones, but I didn't realize right. how many smaller cabaret, but on my list to do is I want to go to her gravesite, And I, I don't think before I, that would have even interested me or thought come to mind and that's that's on my list of things I want to do because it just feels I don't know I can still honor her a different way but I don't know why that just makes me want to go there and see that it just I think this is a marker of who this woman was um Pete are you still on can you hear me yes we can hear I just see your nice little like outline of a snowman <laughs> of your figure I, I know would... my my uh my laptop uh <laughs> went on the on the fritz i'm on my i'm on my ipad now oh look at that how fast you. <laughs> i wasn't sure if you're on there i would i would love to hear what it was like like in the um creating of a show with miss bluebell and dawn because you know we, a lot of us have our stories of dawn some people are still scarred by it some just you know like oh that was just dawn it affected people in <laughs> different ways but I don't know if Miss Bluebell, I'm just really curious what that was like in the creation of a, of a show. You said she was there, but like when he lost it, you know, does she just kind of hang back? Or if, I don't know if they fought, but at every picture, they just look like they're just best friends, like having their cocktails together. But I've heard they have a, a, a very big respect of each other. Big respect. Oh, very- yeah. Enormous, enormous. Uh, and uh, uh, she, she uh, when the show was being put together, 
sketched and uh, um, we all had one-to-one -one meetings with Don. We never had a meeting where that I was at where the set designer was there. We all had individual meetings with him to uh, present stuff. And, uh, and so Bluebell was not in, really involved in that part of it at all, but uh, she was uh, helping cast at that point. You know, she was all over Europe looking at women that were gonna be in the shows. And, and men. And uh, uh, so I really didn't see her till we started rehearsals. And then I didn't have much really to do with her until we started uh, dressing bits and pieces of the show. And, uh, and, and do you remember the, uh, uh, the, line of black and white clowns that open the circus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the, it was, it was all of our male dancers and, uh, and I, I had kind of, you know, you, you can only draw so many clowns and then <laughs> you're on overload. Right. So I drew one of them with a top hat on, but the top hat had been pulled down over his head. So it was like he couldn't see anything. And of course he was seen through scrim inside the, uh, in, inside the hat, but it was funny to watch him dance with all the other guys and do all of, all of the work without obviously being able to, or apparently being able to see. And I remember Bluebell, it's the first, first thing she ever said to me. She leaned over and touched my arm and said, oh, you do have a sense of humor. <laughs> and I went, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, she, but she was, she was great. She was, uh, she, was, she was never effusive. And, and she was, when, when Don would go off, I, she did the same thing Fluff did and we all did. You all just kind of froze and hoped it would be over in, in a second. And, uh, and I, I did see Don Yellen at Bluebell one night in a restaurant. And uh, I got up, I got up and left. I, I, uh, Ooh, that'd be hard to watch. It, it was, it was. I only saw, I don't know how long it lasted, but I saw about three minutes of it. And uh, I paid my bill and got out mm. because uh, he, uh, he, he could, uh, be particularly mean to people. In, in fact, one of the things that I, I learned about him very early, uh, and when I, got, when I got Hello Hollywood, Hello, everyone said, uh, I, I, I ran around saying, oh my God, I'm doing my first Tits and Feathers show. And they'd say, who are you doing it with? I'd say, Don Arden. They'd say, oh my God, Don Arden, did you hear about the time that Don did bump, 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 or said something and stuff? So I was, I was on my P's and Q's around him, uh, particularly at first. But I watched him behave around people, and I noticed that the, the closer he was to you, the nastier he could get. And he would mm -hmm. say extremely personal things to, to people. And uh, uh, I remember him telling a showgirl uh, that he liked. 
on stage uh, while we were, while we were dressing a section of the show, you know, he said something about her performance and, and how awful she was. And he said, no wonder your boyfriends always leave you. Oh. And I went, oh my God. So, I mean, I was very careful around Don. I, I worked for him for over 30 years. I had dinner with him three times. Because, you know, when drinks were being served, you, you didn't want to be on the other side of the table. You really didn't. Mm. But, uh, but I, I know that, that he, and, he and Bluebell adored each other. And she was, uh, uh, God, she, she was really his equal in his eyes. And, uh, and they both were responsible for what was going on. And I, I, don't, I, I don't know, as far as creativity, uh, how much Blue was involved with Don about it, but I know that she was always totally supportive. I mean, totally, totally supportive of him, as was Fluff as was fluff they were uh, you know they were they they both adored him and uh you know and it was bluebell's relationship with don was very symbiotic they uh they both supported each other they both loved each other and they both brought a great deal to the relationship they did hmm. I have a question because she started out in the 30s. Don comes into the picture late 50s. No, 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 30s. He together with the two of them together though. When they actually no, are, no, oh no. I when think, did they actually uh, their first things together? Was that when I think the, the Stardust the Christopher? I think it's the Lido. Am I right? Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. But you, but you are right as well that that Don started early on. He was doing nightclubs yeah. in Los Angeles, in Europe, in, in New York City. I think uh, early 30s. Early like, 30s. They're kind of parallel lives. But... Yeah, 33 is, is. And he started doing the same thing she did. He started doing very small shows. And he was dancing in them. He was performing, as, as was Bluebell. Uh, and, uh, but I, I think probably the Lido was when they first really began working with each other. Uh, and with Fulco and with, you know, people who made the Lido what it was, which was an extraordinarily important uh, 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 venue in, in Paris. It was the, pla the place to go and, and see. What was their last show together? Because it was Jubilee. Did, did he go back and do Paris Ju after that or was he done? No, <laughs> Jubil Jubilee was was the last time I think they got to work together. And then she did I, more in Paris after. Uh, I think, was, I I think, think she, she retired, didn't she? After Jubilee from Valida. Well, I guess that's overlap, but she was in Paris at the same time. Something in Coco Rico or Panache, whenever that switched over to Pierre Rombera's. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. and my timeline. Okay, because she was both continents. She wasn't just one or the other. And no, I think she officially retired in 2004 so she was uh, she was still 
casting the Lido shows at least. I, I don't know about the others up until up until then. Well, she was probably if it was two thousand four, she was probably still uh, um, still uh, getting women and and gents for uh, for Jubilee because that was just about the middle the, the middle of Jubilee's run. There's cast members from uh, I don't know if it's not maybe it was Panache. With, 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 even at the end, she would still come through the dressing room and say good evening oh. to everybody, even though she wasn't working as much when Pierre had, when that transition happened, that she yeah. still mm -hmm. would come backstage and say, that just, that just seems so sweet to me. Cause I mean, she, you know, could have retired and been just fine, but she stayed engaged and personal. I don't know. There's just little bits of things like your pizza story, the things that stand out to me. Oh, just like, I love just like to think of Miss Bluebell coming back and saying good evening to everybody. So, cause I never worked with her except for she brought me over. I think she came to the show once and that was my only contact. So I didn't, it wasn't like she was there all the time. Like a lot of the dancers that talk about her always being there. If you needed something, you'd go to her dressing room. You know, she was there yeah. as mm -hmm. a presence where a lot of us didn't get to experience that, especially over in America. I'm assuming she just wasn't here as much or had an right. office in the, in right. the backstage area. But she was there, I think, almost every night in Paris at the Lido until mm -hmm. she retired. I think she, I think she saw the first show and then went back and, and hung out with the kids for a minute. And then I think left. Uh, but uh, I know, I know she, she went to every, every show and she probably would have, if, if she'd been in, uh, uh, in Vegas or Reno, you know, mm -hmm. it seems like I that mean, would be her character. You know, we, we all, we all had the same thing. We put the show together, but man, after opening night, you know, I was out of there. And it was funny because uh, in we opened after the fire in 82, I think. And uh, Don decided in 94 that he wanted Bob and me to come back and, and redo the show uh, because it had run for, you know, a gazillion years and everybody had worn the costumes. <laughs> uh, and uh, Don... All Don wanted was Bob and me to recreate what we had done. There were going to be no new numbers. There was going to be nothing. And Bob didn't want to do it. And he said to me, well, you know, you just, you do my costumes. You know what they look like. We were all together when they were built. And uh, he said, just make them look the same. So I said, fine. So I, they put me on a three-year contract to redo the show. And we only did a couple of numbers a, a year, uh, but we redid the entire show. And then they, then Don started changing stuff. He changed the whole opening. Uh, he cut numbers, he cut gold diggers, he cut uh, 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 Tales of the Vienna Woods out of Bob's section and wanted new things put in. So I, I, I did all that. And then in, in like 2001 or two, they started calling me back to uh, look at four shows and then have a meeting with everybody and say, you know, I think this needs to be changed or that needs to be cleaned up or you need new feathers on the girls in this section. Uh, they're starting to look shoddy and stuff. So, you know, the show for me was an avocation. 
it wasn't really a job. It lasted for years and years and years. And I think that that blue, particularly in in Paris, I think I think the Lido was her house. It was her family, mm. you know. Mm. And and I know and, and I know she was very close to uh, most of the women, most of the women, mm-hmm. and uh, and just you know terrific terrific with them and and like a kind of like a stern parent you know you didn't misbehave you didn't stay out past the time your folks wanted you out you just uh you minded your p's and q's around her and uh acted like a lady or a gentleman Mm. but she was uh she was a real mother figure to everybody she really was Mm. But, uh, well, but Christopher, I, I'm sorry, go ahead, Pete. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I was just so happy to be around her when she was funny and relaxed and having a, having a good time. I it just was, love that piece was, that you brought. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it was like, I think that one was the one like, oh, I just, I want to see a video of that. Because Christopher, uh, you were in the talking about making this a musical. And I love when you had talked about the structure of a Don Arden show, like there's always a disaster section. Uh, if it was uh, the sinking of the Titanic, if it was the Earth, San Francisco earthquake, like there's that. And I'm even thinking Miss Bluebell, there's the war story, but then we won't go to this too much, but even Vegas with the mafia, like there's stories I've heard that, you know, they're checking with Miss Bluebell, like this thing is happening. And so for her to not be there, but to know that these girls, you know, it's not, it wasn't safe for a lot of them, the things that were going on and their naivete. And so to be a Bluebell and not be fraternizing with, you know, the patrons also maybe don't hang out with mob bosses. But I just know that there's also kind of that, you know, the disaster scene in some ways, because a lot of people said that that was the best time to be a showgirl was the mafia time because they were taken care of. Like, don't mess with the showgirls. They can walk down the street with diamonds on and no one's going to mess with them. But that has, again, I don't know that was a question. (laughs) But when you put this together, whatever it comes out of, I just love your, your way you would frame her life of the disaster, but also there's in the Don Arden thing, there's always though they shall rise. Like at the end of the San Francisco earthquake and hello, Hollywood, hello, they're singing, let's down, town will stand again. I know the Titanic, there was something that brings it back up, but with it's, you know, her life, I think I'm more in awe of her, of what she went through and then what she created with grace out of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's interesting is, yeah, there are these sort of like eras of her life that are that are really interesting. And, you know, I had sort of, tried to frame it in that style of, um, it's certainly not, you know, Jubilee. It's not that we could never yeah. do that. I don't think that's right. possible, or, as, as Pete said earlier, but, you know, and it's, it really is going to be a piece of musical theater, uh, whether anything comes of it or it's just a hobby, I don't know. But the, um, the idea is following the sort of structure of the sort of, I'm calling them the Blue Bell Arden shows, these shows that had a, they had a very definite sort of framework that changed drastically, but there was sort of always an exotic sort of section of the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there was always the the disaster sequence that sort of had some sort of biblical or morality sort of tale woven in there. <laughs> uh, and then there was the Hollywood extravaganza, you know, that, um, that was, I think, all of the MGM films and all of that influence that I'm sure Don had on his life. Um, so he, there were, there were these elements, you know, and, um, you know, and I think, and I, I always say this, I, I, Sherry, I know you've heard me say this, 
I think he, what he should be recognizing, what Bluebell should be recognized, because I think, I really think there was, she was behind a lot of that, is that they created these shows that were, could tra translate to any language that anyone could watch and that were uniquely visual, unlike anything I've ever seen. So visual. It was, mm -hmm. it was so much of it was the movement, the costumes, the lighting, the, the scenery, and not just that, but how these shows transition. I've never seen a show like a Jubilee or a Hello Hollywood that transitions so smoothly from one thing to another that the energy uh, carries from God. one piece to the next completely smoothly. And, you know, it's interesting. I never heard that, Pete, that he met with his designers separately. Yeah. That seems wild to me because it all looks like it just goes together. Not just that it goes together, that one line of women goes off and the set changes and this yes. line of people comes on. It's just all, it, and it builds energy. It builds energy as you go through those acts. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in. And certainly you saw that in her life. You know, if you, if you look at the rhythm of what was going on in her life and how things change, but those shows were so tightly compacted. That's why when, you know, later on when Jubilee was revamped, it was, it's really hard to take that apart and put that back together. Yeah. How do you do that? And, and make it look like it, it belongs in that piece. Because mm -hmm. that is like energy, energy, any, you, ju you just keep going and keep moving and everything was about movement on stage. I think that yeah. was the real brilliance. That and then finding talent. Not only the performers, oh. but finding the right people to do the costumes wow. and the sets, the people that were the best, the best materials, being in the best venue, you know, all of that I think was, was really important. You know, if they weren't in, um, the places they were, they wouldn't have run as long, you know, a, a, as they did. Um, so, you know, that's huge too. I, I don't know a lot of shows that run as long as a Jubilee or even a Hello Hollywood Hello. How, how long did that run? 10 years? Some, 11. It, it, yeah, I think 11, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. That's a lot yeah. of people yeah. that saw that show. That's wild. And and I, I know how much it takes to keep up a show, like to maintain a show, to oh. watch it every night, <laughs> to find the things that yeah. are wrong. That's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, Pete. Like, uh, oh, sorry, Christopher. It was is the direct was teaching directing, and I think it's like your mind of how you see big picture and you see the things that some of us would not notice of how it's structured, how it goes, why this works. Like, your I think the way your brain works has helped me to see the big picture different, and mm. the show is different, and Miss Bluebell's life different. So that perspective is really helpful for me because you could look at that show and say, how does Samson Delilah and the Titanic go together? They don't. But there's some way of the, with good storytelling and the magic of how they, he moved people. And there's just so much to this that would not work without but the, every detail that, that was in it. But the variety that Don always had in his shows uh, was, was one of the things that made them work. I mean, one of, one of the cardinal rules about designing a cabaret show is you don't do two numbers that are the same color like Bob did uh, red fans. And so I was, I was very careful. I used red in other things, but I didn't, I never did a, a red number. So the, the, the numbers, the whole acts are all separate. They're, they, it's not repetitive. You don't want it to be. Otherwise it's just a lot of women coming down another staircase and a lot, another bunch of feathers. And, mm. uh, and, Don, I've, I've worked for a lot of directors and choreographers, and I, I don't care what anybody says about Don, nobody could block a show like that man. 
I mean, it just poured over you at the audience. And there are people who've seen shows three times that didn't know we had a lion in it. Mm-hmm. Even though <laughs> even though we had 148 people singing, hello, Leo, hello. <laughs> Pointing you know? at the lion. <laughs> and they go, uh, I, no, I don't remember a lion. I mean, Don, Don was really a master at that. And nothing, nothing lasted long. You know, uh, dance numbers were were short. Nothing was nothing could get boring. Nothing could get boring. And he changed, you know, if 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 the show opened, it didn't open on stage. It, it opened with three women coming out of the ceiling, you know, nude. And uh, then it opened on stage and then the sound side stages opened and he was he was remarkable. He was really remarkable about that. And and uh, and Christopher, even even though even at that stage, when we were putting the show together, he would have he would have all three choreographers do a section. And then they'd audition the sections. Then they'd audition the sections in the costumes, you know, and, and it, was, it was a killer. It was a killer for the kids. We did uh, uh, the Hello Leo uh, number that opened the disco in the, in the first act of Jubilee. We had eight different versions of the choreography and two different versions of the costume. And I remember coming in when we were doing dresses and Don would get on, on the, the microphone and say, okay, uh, let's start with Hello Leo. I want version five, I want Winston's. And girls would be backstage crying because you know, you can't keep eight different versions of a number in your head. Oh my gosh. And, then, and be expected to perform them in front of somebody you know is, gonna rip you a new one if if you're screwing up yeah wow. there was a, a lot of pressure but he was he and and he changed stuff all the time not costumes so much but a lot of a lot of blocking and uh, uh and and sometimes it was a real problem we uh we, we, in titanic we had a section called fun and games that was all the dancers and then uh, right after that, the dancers all had to come to the captain's party and do, do uh, several different sections and stuff. And all the singers had to be changed. And they didn't have much time between fun and games and the other. And so we had set up, uh, uh, we had set up floor changes with big sheets and chairs for all the kids and all the dresses and we all rehearsed it and rehearsed it and we started running it and we never got it the the staircase would come up the captain would come out and the staircase would be empty there would be nobody on it and don would go crazy and uh uh, and finally we we had worked one evening until really almost one in the morning and uh we tried to do the, the scene change. And all of a sudden, the staircase lifted, the captain walked out and all these dancers and singers started pouring down the stairs. 
And Don started applauding. And I, I thought, oh, thank God, you know, the dressers finally, finally got it. We finally got it worked out properly. So I went backstage to, uh, to thank the kids. And uh, I, I said, you know, God, it's really magnificent when it works. It looks so beautiful. I wish you all could have seen it. And I want to thank you for making it happen. Don was so pleased. And Donna's or the the uh, Dortha said, uh, "I I don't know how to tell you this. We were on a break. The dancers and singers did it by themselves." Wow, probably out of fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he has yeah. that in his mind. Like he probably sees it a certain way until it's exactly how he sees it. Yeah, he's not wow. So gentlemen, we are going to uh, come to an end here. And I have a question for you, which is, I think the same question for both of you, but you have a very different way of how you see Miss Bluebell. But I would love for you to end with this. Like, what is something that you would like people to know about Miss Bluebell from your experience of either researching or her knowing her? Like, is there something that feels like it should end with of, of something that maybe people don't know about her or that you have been moved by because of her? Um, I'll out. Um, you know, I, I think her, her legacy um, is the amount of women she gave careers to. I mean, mm -hmm. women and men, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we think of, of the Bluebells as, uh, you know, mostly women. Um, she gave careers to so many dancers mm -hmm. that took that and maybe they kept dancing. Maybe they opened a studio. Maybe they, uh, uh, you know, had a, had a second career, but they it was almost like this boot camp but you know at one point i think it's in the book or maybe maybe in her obituary i think they say there was there, there had been a, up to that point which this is a long time ago like fourteen thousand bluebells so that number has grown since then um I, I, you know that's a lot of people that she sort of found that talent and employed them and some of these people were coming from you know the, the local dance studio and she was putting them on this big stage and taking them all over the world you know some of these people would have never seen the world if it wasn't for for Bluebell. So I think that's a huge legacy, you know, and, and yeah. the fact that, you know, I'm, we're on a podcast right now where you talk all the time to these people and and you hear their stories about what they're doing now, what they've done since, what that life was like, where they came from. That's really an incredible legacy. Yeah. Christopher's absolutely right. The uh, uh, this month for for Christmas, uh, I was looking at old pictures that I have, and uh, a lot of them are from Don and, and Blue's shows. And it dawned on me that people really don't know how talented the, the performers in the show have to be. And all of the all of the hurdles they have to get over. You have to be a certain height. You have to look a certain way. You have to be talented. You have to be able to really sell on stage. Those, all the, the criterion that Don and Blue had for people was astonishing. I mean, it was really astonishing. So I decided that every day for December, I would post pictures of, uh, you know, of different performers. I wish I could post all of them because the there were so many people in the show that are that were fabulous that I I I don't have any coverage on, but uh, 
I, I thought it was so important that just over the holidays that people took a look at that legacy and, uh, and realized number one, how important it was. And number two, how difficult it was, you know, it was, uh, it was just extraordinary. And, uh, uh, Liz uh, Elliot Lieberman mm. just wrote the other day, and and we were talking about Bluebell. We were writing back and forth, and and she said uh, she said the same thing Christopher just said. She said uh, I, I had written to Liz and I said, look at how many lives Blue Blue touched, and Liz wrote back and said and changed. And mm -hmm. changed. Absolutely. You know, she, uh, she and she and Don were were remarkable, and anybody who got to work with them was so fortunate, really, because they they opened a world, you know, a really magical world for all of us, all of us, mm. and uh, you know. It was, it's, it's extraordinary. And the product was extraordinary. I don't think you'll ever see anything like their shows ever, ever again. I, I can't, I can't imagine how it could happen. No, even if somebody has a ton of money, you can, you can't just do this with money <laughs> or yep. you can have a vision, not have the money. It's good. It has to take the excellence of of all every, that, the, every feather, yeah. every shoe, every crystal, the yeah. music, every, the choreographer, every singer, every dancer, every stagehand, every wardrobe person. I mean, there, there are, you know, there are thousands of us that made a living working for them, and uh, and you know, I hadn't just fallen off the turnip truck when Don hired me, but he. Uh, he did get me uh, in, into Paris and at Swarovski and, you know, they, they both opened, opened so many doors for people. And, and of course, you know, Bluebell even went one beyond that because she made a, a woman who was appearing topless on stage uh, a lady. You know, she changed the perception of of how people thought of, of performers and cabaret performers in particular. You know, she legitimized that, she and Don. Yeah. This is a good way to end. I just have to say that um, I really appreciate both of your takes and angles on this because it just... It, she's bigger than what we can get in that one book. Oh, God. And no. so it's just uh, every story... And this is, um, it was Elizabeth Phillips sent me, she had her book, so I endorsed it, which was super fun. Her book came out. I have Bluebells Forever's on the cover. Um, uh, but she wrote, she wrote me this note and it just said, Miss Bluebell would be proud of you. And Rachel said, as she said, because we're telling the stories and we're keeping the community together. So yeah. that made me cry because I'm, everything is community to me, but I'm like, oh wait, that's Miss Bluebell. Like how she would love that we are not just telling her story of how great she was, but that we're finding each other and that the community um, values what we did and each other because I feel like that's yeah. as proper as she was it was a you know like this family that she created and so that yeah. we're still telling her story and telling each other stories and it, it feels like 
it feels honoring to do that for her. It is. It is. We're all, we're all her kids. <laughs> what a messed up family, but another. wonderful that we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. It, it's so important to keep talking about it because, you know, there's people that were contemporaries of Bluebell that, you know, maybe we're doing Broadway shows that are like people know about. It's taught in universities. It's like, you know, there's books and books and the things on the internet and YouTube videos and all this information that somebody young could find and discover. And uh, I think with, with Don and with Bluebell, I think we need to keep talking about that until they, they get that due, you know, of the genius that was going mm -hmm. on. This was really somebody at the top of their craft, you know, to, to Pete's point about all the, all the people that it took to, to get these shows mounted. Also a lifetime of expertise to get to the point where someone like Bluebell was at the top of her craft, someone like Don was at the top of their craft and, um, and really had learned from a lifetime of show business how to put these shows on, how to create these yeah. things. I mean, I don't know if there's someone who could do it. I mean, you know, I was, you were talking before, like, you know, I direct sometimes at universities and do small musicals and just figuring the traffic of that out is maddening. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did 135 people in a room and, and put on a show. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. Well, then the, and, and the other thing about that is it's not just the people you see on stage. And this happens with the Rockettes too, with the Christmas show. You have swings, you have spares, you have to deal with, with uh, who's sick, who's out, who's, who's in the show that time, who's doing what section, have they been fit in a costume? You know, it's, it's an extraordinary undertaking, extraordinary. And, uh, and I, I think we, we should all be proud that we were involved in it. Yeah. So Christopher, whatever you do with this, I'm just grateful that you've done so much research and you've helped educate those of us who were in it that didn't even know. But I love the passion you have. For that. And Pete, I love that you're still telling your stories and that that a lot of us get to post our costumes and say, yep, this was a Pete thing. And that, that Karen Burns has these costumes preserved somewhere that there's pieces yeah. of it that you can still go and touch and see. And UNLV, like looking at Miss Bluebell's scrapbooks, oh my gosh, just to know like they were hers and all the article clippings. It was wonderful. So as we part, I just want to say wherever she is, thank you, Miss Bluebell, from everyone that ever had the honor of working with you or watching one of those shows. We just thank you for, for the magic that you created. Don Arden, if you guys are drinking cocktails up there, I hope you're not being mean to the angels, Don, but uh, we, <laughs> you're fat, Mr. Angel. Um, but yeah, they would a beautiful team um, of what they created. So thank you guys for taking the time to do this. I loved hearing Okay. both of your perspectives so happy holidays Thanks. this will come out after the holidays but wish you the best and that you get some rest same to you and christopher married with your project oh, yes. thank you thank you it's a it's a pleasure to meet you i'm a huge fan huge huge fan thank you thank you